Hello, my name is Zach Powers. I'm the media and content manager at Pacific Lutheran University. And thank you for tuning in to this second uh, faculty edition of our yet to be named podcast. Today, we're talking to two faculty members from PLU's MFA in Creative Writing program, the Rainier Writers Workshop. Um, we'll be talking about all sorts of things to do with creative writing, some of the things that they're working on, and the program at PLU. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves, and then we will launch into our conversation. Hi, I'm Rick Barrett. I'm the director of the Rainier Writing Workshop, and I'm also an associate professor in the English department at PLU. And I'm Ann Pancake. I'm a member of the uh, faculty of the uh, Rainier Writing Workshop. Uh, and I teach primarily fiction. Thank you both so much for being here. And I wanted to start just kind of by giving folks a, a feel for, for what it is that you do as writers, because most of our conversation today will kind of be from the perspective, I think, uh, of writers as opposed to teachers, although I'm sure those things are kind of not separated. But Rick, could you tell us um, the sorts of things that, that you write, maybe a couple um, about a couple of your, your books, but what sort of writing that you do? Sure. My, I'm primarily a poet. My third book of poems uh, just got published this month, as a matter of fact, by Saraband Books. I'm also uh, uh, an essay writer, primarily essays on poetry and art. But uh, I, I did start out my life as a writer, as a nonfiction writer. I wanted desperately to be a New Yorker writer, somebody who would write for the talk of the town. But at some point during uh, my college life, poetry seduced me and took over, and I've never really looked back. All right. Thank you so much. And can you um, tell us some of the same information about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm mostly a fiction writer. Uh, I've published two books of short collections of short stories and one novel. Um, also write nonfiction. Uh, I'd say I call it mostly personal essay, what I do with nonfiction. And um, have written some scholarly work and also journalism. So, and, and most of my fiction is set in Appalachia. It's concerned a lot with the environment in Appalachia, but I think that the environment in Appalachia has a lot of relevance to the what's happening to the environment in the rest of the United States. My novel is about mountaintop removal mining, and uh, my short stories are more about the relationship between people and land, especially land that's being uh, diminished or destroyed. So you both have been really busy this year, and you were recently nominated for a Stranger Genius Award in Literature. Is, is that was it literature or writing or something? Yeah, creative writing, I think. Yeah, creative writing. writing. Yeah, yeah. There was a great article about you and about kind of your approach to writing and some uh, environmental is issues and history that's represented in your work. Can you talk about just kind of what that nomination has entailed, maybe community response to that nomination or that experience? Well, the nomination has been fun. I mean, the strangers are fun, a fun bunch. So they, they threw a really... Uh, great party for us and and but but beyond that and then there'll be another party when they actually announce the the winner on September 12th and they've been great about doing publicity for everyone who was nominated so regardless of who wins we, we're um, getting a lot of attention and for me it's especially important because a lot of my of my readerships on the east coast although I've lived in Seattle off and on for like 17 years because my work is set on the east coast sure. most of my readers are there so this is a way that uh, they're bringing my, my uh, fiction more to the attention of Seattle uh, readers. And so, so I'm really glad about That's that. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Congratulations. And Rick, last April, you had a poem published in the New York Times, you know, our nation's most prestigious newspaper. What was that experience like? What was the selection experience like? Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, um, our former poet laureate, Natasha Troy has a poetry column 
that is run in the New York Times Sunday Magazine every Sunday. And she chose one of my poems to feature. It, it was a pretty incredible experience to have a poem published in such a visible venue. Most of my audience tends to be a small one. Uh, it, it includes my friends, my family, uh, other poets, and you know maybe uh, other writers as well. But when you're published in some place like the New York Times, that readership, that, that circle gets very large. I have a website where I have my email address and I got dozens of emails from strangers who 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 were very appreciative of the poem. That's awesome. Um, and it was lovely because they, they would each offer a bit of interpretation of the poem. <laughs> and if I if I had a little anthology of all of those interpretations, it would be a, a, a fun reading experience. Um, but it's, 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 it was interesting to, to get a feel for, and this is something poets never have, not really, for that kind of visibility. It was, it was lovely and intense. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. Great. So now I was hoping we could transition to sort of, um, kind of a speed, uh, not a speed round, but just sort of some kind of rapid fire questions about literature. And I just wrote a few down and we can go through some of the questions that I wrote and a few questions, similar questions for each other, we can just kind of throw some questions around. So the first one that I had was for both of you, all these questions are going to be for both of you, is uh, your single favorite living and your single favorite deceased poet. And so we'll start with Anne. I'd say my single deceased poet, my most favorite deceased poet would be uh, Rainier Rilke. It's, I get, I'll get myself in trouble if I talk about the living poets because I have many who are friends. But and I have to ask, Rick, is, is Jack Gilbert did, is Jack Gilbert still alive? Or did he's, he recently die? He's recently deceased. Okay. So, so he, he, he's, he's one of my, yeah. He's one of my favorite almost alive poets. All right. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. How um, about for you, Rick? I, I think for me, in terms of the, the deceased, I have a very safe answer in Elizabeth Bishop. I I the kind of visual accuracy that she has in her poetry is something that I I care about quite a bit and that I admire. In terms of the living ones, I um I, I'm in the same boat as as Anne. Um but, you know, if I and the thing is it changes every day. You know, the way your mood uh changes all the time, the kind of poet you need to engage with on on any given day changes as well. I, I have a, a kind of a a, a coffee uh, morning coffee ritual that I do where I read a poem each day with my coffee. And today it turned out it was Arthur Z, who is a, a poet out of New Mexico. He's a fantastic poet that I, I wish more people read. All right. Okay. Well, we're off to off to a good start. Some some passes are already, but that's to be expected. So this one I think that will. This is a, a less, <laughs> hopefully not, no friends will get offended on this one. This next question is, the novel that had the greatest influence on you prior to your graduating high school. Hmm. I think, I think you want to go first? Right? Yeah. I was, I, 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 this is a very interesting question to me because the answer I came up with was Wuthering Heights. And I, I, the more I thought about uh, my response, the more I wondered, why in the world would they teach <laughs> Wuthering Heights in high school? It's it's a it's a novel about crazy romanticism, and I'm, I'm trying to understand the values that that novel would 
ingrain in teenagers. But anyway, well, um, Romeo and Juliet, right, has kind of the same prepos- exactly. preposterous, like we've only just met, but we're turning our lives upside down <laughs> yes. and losing our lives for this preposterous yes. relationship. So I, I guess it would have to be Wuthering Heights, but I'm still thinking about the, the consequences of, of teaching that novel in high school. So what, reading that novel in high school. I know I, I know I said when we were outlining this that we we're going to talk about what's so I'm curious, what was the influence on you that it had? Were you quite a romantic in high school because of that book? Well, I or? think if you're 16 or 17, you you that's that's in you, and um, this novel just allows you the space to imagine what's in you to a really kind of extreme degree, right? I was actually talking to somebody about what's the equivalent novel these days. Um, what what is that novel called about uh, the fault in your the fault in your stars. In, in our stars. In yeah. our stars. Do you know this? No, novel? I don't know it. Well, I, I think, I don't know if it's considered a young adult novel, but it's about two, two uh, teenagers who have, um, uh, they're dying. They have terminal illnesses. Uh, oh, so I have very, heard of that. Yes. A, there's a movie. Yes. 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 Yes, 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 yes. I saw the movie. Right. <laughs> yeah. But it's the same, I don't know, the same scenario. And it's beloved by young people. So I, I, I wonder if it's the same thing that it allows young people who have all of this crazy emotional stuff going on to, I don't know, project or to uh, live a fantasy of that, even if they're not dying or they're not in the moors of England somewhere. Gotcha. Yeah. And how about you? Well, I I went to a high school where we didn't, um, we didn't really read novels in my high school. Uh, so, but I read voraciously from the time I was really little, so I was kind of more of a stealth reader, and I was also allowed to read in school when I'd finish my work, so that was, that was the kind of reading that I mostly did, and I didn't have a lot of, uh, direction towards what would be appropriate novels to read or literary novels to read, so, um, so I had, I, I was thinking about your question, and, and it's interesting, I think I have two, two answers. One is, um, there was another, uh, sort of, this sort of cognitive dissonance to be a kid in Appalachia in the 1970s when a whole lot of the uh, novels that I found in the library were uh, set in New York City so or, or someplace like that. So I had I had no way to uh, to understand that context. And I also remember them. This reminds me of you know, Rick talking about Wuthering Heights, that I did have a teacher who told me in the summer I should read Jane Eyre. And so I tried to read Jane Eyre, and it was so foreign. And I was, of course, reading it by myself to anything I knew that I, I couldn't really uh, get through it. But so I think that the the things that I read as a kid that most influenced my writing now are really oddly sort of uh, the kinds of things you read when you're 10 or 11 that are about the outdoors and about often about dogs. So like <laughs> Where the Red Fern Grows yeah. or Sounder or there's a, there was a book called Where the Lilies Bloom, which was actually set somewhere in Appalachia, which was about the only one that I ever read as a kid that was. So those, um, interestingly and kind of scarily, I know still influenced my writing, but I know what that there was a point. And then I read a whole lot of Stephen King. Um, in junior high, because I didn't know what else to read, and then and I and I really enjoyed them, but then I somehow happened on a copy of uh, Lord of the Flies when I was probably in tenth or eleventh grade, and it happened to have at the end an essay, a, a, a critical essay which I'd never read before, which which talked about symbolism in Lord of the Flies, and that mm-hmm. was kind of my first introduction to 
this fiction is working on more levels than just the one that I, you know, was most most apparent to me. So, so then when I read that essay after reading Lord of the Flies, I was able to start reading differently, even though I was still reading on my own. Gotcha. I remember in eighth grade, I had this teacher who, who we read um, Lord of the Flies and Animal Farm and a bunch of those books, and I just understood none of the symbolism or really what those books were about, but just thought they were so incredibly interesting because the semester before we had read um, like Graves of Wrath and a bunch of books. Wow, I was like, wow, yeah. these books are really entertaining. There's <laughs> things happening. These yeah, characters yeah. are unusual. And just all of it went way over my head while we were reading them and yeah. what they were about, but they were a great relief just, you know, on face value from, yeah. from Steinbeck. All right. So um, what's the best book you read in 2015? Well, not the best, your favorite. The best is a... <laughs> preposterous way to put that question what's your favorite what's your favorite or like rick was saying i mean there's different books and different poems for different moods yeah. and different places what are yeah. what's a book or two that's really stood out to you that you've read this year it doesn't have to be a book that's a new book either i i, I was thinking about this question in terms of genre uh, i read quite a bit of all the genres uh in and you know i'll i'll mention two books that that have really stuck in my mind, uh, even though it's been a while since I read them. The first one is a book of stories by uh, a writer out of Wyoming named Nina McConigley. And she she has, she, she, I, I don't know if it was published this year or the year before, but it's a book of short stories called Cowboys and East Indians. And it, Nina is, uh, I believe, half Indian and half uh, white and grew up in Wyoming. And so a lot of these stories are about this very seemingly incongruous mixture of cultures, um, as, as the title of the, of the book suggests. And I think this book is getting quite a bit of a, attention now, so I'm, I'm glad about that. The, the second book is a book of poetry by a very good friend of mine named Kate Marvin, and it's a, it's a book of poems called Oracle. Um, really fierce poems about, about love, about elegy, about contemporary life. Well, I, I like Rick. I'll, I I'll, I'll, I read across different genres. Um, but the uh, I'd say the the fiction, the piece, the work of fiction that I've read this year that that I've found the most um, innovative and uh, and would really like people to know about because it was published by a small press and I don't know how much publicity it's getting is a is a novel called Trampoline by a writer who who is a friend of mine named Robert Guype and. Um, the, the novel is set in eastern Kentucky, and it's told from the point of view of a 15-year-old girl. And I think uh, one thing that I find, there are a number of things I find really interesting about it, but one is that I think that that, uh, that landscape of eastern Kentucky is is a landscape that's somewhat of a harbinger of um, what the landscape would be like in the United States at large if um, we continue in some of the avenues that we're on in, term, in terms of environmentalist destruction and uh, um, and uh, letting corporations basically have say over our governments, which has been the case in Kentucky and West Virginia for about 100 years. But there's it's a very much a post-apocalyptic landscape, but it's not uh, an imagined dystopia. It, it is, it's a realist novel. It's realism. Uh, but it's full of humor. It's full of horror. It's full of of love, um, and I'm just blown away by the way that that Robert Guy uh, inhabits this this girl character. Another 
to on a very different kind of book, which I think was published in the 1970s, which uh, I read in this year is called um, A Feeling for the Organism. And it's a biography of a scientist called Barbara McClintock, who did um, revolutionary work with plant science biology uh, earlier in the century. And um, I, th I think that I'm, mo I'm moved by that book because of the way that she is had early on um, called into question a lot of assumptions in Western biological science and uh, and had relationships with the plants that she was working with, which um, she was, of course, denigrated for and, and uh, uh, belittled. And that has now come to be known that her work was, was accurate and that the, the kind of research that she did, uh, even though it was uh, at odds with uh, with conventional biology is now sort of the new biology. So I found that uh, really moving and inspiring. Very cool. Mm. How did you come across the um, the scientist? Oh. As a, as a figure or as a scientist or did, did you already know about her? You know, I, I came across her when I was blurbing a book about blueberry, organic blueberry growing. And the person mm -hmm. who, the author of the book mentioned her as a person who had a different kind of relationship with the plants that she studied than most scientists do. So that's when, then I went and sought it out. But, yeah. So responding to um, a lot of different dialogues and conversations that we've been having um, on campus throughout last school year and that we'll be continuing to have this school year, um, I wanted to talk about writing and creative, creative writing in particular as a tool in uh, fueling and informing public dialogue and challenging or encouraging readers to think about things in, in a different light or from a different space. And I was thinking about this prompt and I came across the first paragraph on the Rainier Writing Workshop website and it says, what are your goals as a maker of literature, as an artist contributing to the conversation about urgent matters of our time? What is the work you want to do? the work that is specific to your experience, talent, and imagination. And uh, contributing to the conversation about urgent matters of our time is just what I was hoping we would uh, talk about today. I wanted to open up a conversation about what a challenge that, that is and, and how a writer can take the tools and the experiences that, that they have, but then also respond to what's happening in their community or, or all over the world. So, I mean, and your work seems to almost all of it seems to have some element of this. And, and Rick, your, much of your poetry that I've read as well. So I was just wondering kind of how you see that playing out uh, within yourselves or with, uh, your students and kind of how this is discussed at the Rainier Writing Workshop and just have a conversation about that. Well, I think that as a writer of literary fiction in 2015, um, given the uh, the cultural crises that are that are going on right now, and, and not just in the environment, but in, in so many uh, so many venues. It, it's you're always I, I'm always asking myself the question: What am I doing writing? You know, sitting home and writing fiction, as opposed to being in the streets or doing some kind of grassroots organizing or something that's more uh, uh, directly uh, influencing political change, and. Um, I've had to come to the conclusion that, uh, you know, writing literary fiction is what I do best, and um, I need to honor that and, and uh, do it as best I can, as opposed to beating myself up for not doing other things that, that I'm not that talented with. But um, I'm also at a place in my writing, uh, 
you're, you're right. A lot of my work has, has addressed politics. And in my opinion, most of it that I've written so far has, the, the, the work has been a witnessing work. So it's been describing uh, situations that are uh, untenable or, or uh, um, leading to extinction or uh, destruction. And in the years since I published my novel, Strange as This Weather Has Been, which is which does this witnessing, which is an account of what it is to to live with mountaintop removal mining, um, there there's a part of me that uh, has become more disillusioned with the power of witnessing, and it's not that I don't think it's necessary. It's the it's necessary, but I'm seeing it more as a as an initial step because uh, it's so. Um, what I'm trying to work with now in my fiction and nonfiction, not not particularly successfully, and I can't articulate very well, articulate it very well, is um, a kind of fiction that instead of just documenting and witnessing what is happening, uh, tries to imagine forward in a way that is not dystopic, uh, because we have plenty of post-apocalyptic dystopia in uh, in fiction. Uh, so that's the, kind of the challenge I've set up for myself now is how to move before, beyond documenting into imagining forward in, in a way that's not science fiction, that's not fantasy, that's not dystopia. And um, I think that this might lead me to writing more nonfiction. Uh, but, but yeah, so that's kind of where I am with it. So when you're talking about imagining forward um, and say um, about something with kind of um, to do with corporate, you know, environmental injustices yeah. or things like that, are, are, do you think that are you looking forward to what um what it looks like to to stop or reduce or combat these things or are you looking all the way forward to a place where these things have been if not eliminated but um but largely dealt with in a way that they have not been is it kind of the resulting place or is it how do we here's here's what it looks like to me what dealing with this stuff might look like i think the things that you're describing are are are, uh are vital and that and that writers need to do that but what i'm interested more in doing is uh, writing in a way that makes people um upset the paradigms that they bring in the first place that make them think that this is that this is the way to relate to the world basically so it's a it's a and it's something that i call like a a revolutionizing of people's interiors and so that can be uh, less directly about representation of what a post-corporate uh, society would look like, but um, uh, ways of calling into question um, uh, you know, assumptions that we have right now about our relationships with with other people and with other things that aren't people. So, yeah. what are a couple, or even what's a classic novel that hmm. most folks might be familiar with that um, you think does a good job of that? Wow, the thing that I'm describing, sort of, yeah, huh. yeah. If and if if or if you if there is kind of some sort of model or example. Well, it depends on how subtle you want to. I mean, you could say that uh, something is as different, as as unattached to politics as as Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man or Ulysses does that because of the way that he writes revolutionizes the way you read. So there's a way just form can do that. Um, so I'm trying to think of a content, a more content-driven novel that does what I'm describing. I can't think off the top of my head because I'm not good at thinking off the top of my head, Sorry. but uh, but it's an excellent question, yeah. Your your response makes me wonder about um, writers who, who might be wanting to do or trying to do the same thing, and I, I wonder what you think of what Marilyn Robinson is doing. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. Marilyn's, mm-hmm. Marilyn Robinson's mm-hmm. fiction is is 
is is always immersed in the people and the time period she's writing about, and they tend not to be contemporary. Mm-hmm. They're near contemporary. On the other hand, a lot of her nonfiction is is deeply invested in sort of overturning the kind of you know apple carts of knowledge yes, that we have yes, in terms of yes. paradigms of of understanding that we have about yeah. you know the environment, about uh-huh. language itself, about religion and philosophy. But it is interesting that she she seems to have created a kind of a, a boundary between the work she does as a mm. fiction writer. Mm-hmm. And as a nonfiction writer, one is is you know is 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 deeply aesthetic. Mm-hmm. The other one, uh, the nonfiction, seems quite a bit more political. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I wonder if she's if she stays up late at night wondering how can I bring those these two things together. Yeah, it's a good question, Rick. I haven't read her nonfiction. I know a little bit about what it what it's about, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, yeah, those are yeah. Rick, what do you think with your work? Um, mm-hmm. It seems that um, a great deal of your poems do say something profound about, um, like even going back to Wright Park, about how this some sort of little disturbance at Wright Park is being perceived by this older man who, who's who's walking by and and kind of scapegoats a particular uh, person or or, um, or any number of people who. You could see that you saw that situation in a certain way, and you also saw how someone else perceived it, and then you kind of built off of that. I felt like in um, in 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 writing a poem that kind of calls out the situation for being a little bit mm-hmm. ludicrous. And is that a fair? <laughs> but what's the process around that? I, mean, I don't know if I'm reading the poem correctly, but what's your process in experiencing something that that may not be something as you know large or physical as um, environmental injustice, even just an exchange or something smaller or more nuanced? What, mm-hmm. How do you call that out? Well, the, the poem you're referring to is called Wright Park. And the triggering moment in it is that uh, a friend and I were in Wright Park in Tacoma, Washington, and we witnessed uh, a man on a bicycle being arrested uh, by a good number of police people and we were standing in a group of of uh with a group of bystanders and uh, a man standing next to us said something very hateful about the uh the person who who um who was arrested and it led to the poem that i wrote responding to the man's um slur um and so the the the, the poem that you're referring to is a very is a very d- direct response to a piece of experience. And uh, it's it's about the experience of witnessing or hearing hate. Um, and I, I felt called to respond to it. Uh, it's a very, it, it's a poem that's full of hate. Uh, know, yeah. Both it's from... Inten- it's an intense piece. Yes, both from the situation and from the speaker who who, who was more or less me. But in a way, that poem is is part of a, a spectrum of poems that I've written that engage with the things all all around me. Um, some of which can be, in in a way, black and white, in terms of how you're spo- supposed to respond. There are a lot of things that that we encounter on a given day that's that's more nuanced in terms of its problematics, and so the kinds the other kinds of poems that I write 
especially these days, have to do with with race, with uh, with gender, with history, certainly, and um, and sort of uh, meditating through some of the complex strands or issues that those topics bring up. Um, so the poem that you're talking about, in a way, was an easy one to write because it was it was um, it was there for me to write. Other poems that are that I've been working on these days have to do with juxtaposing different kinds of thoughts um, uh, in order to understand a little bit better what the political really is. Um, I think many of us tend to think of the political as just being a public phenomenon, perhaps. But in my own life as a writer, the political is where the public and the private intersect. And so the poems that I'm writing are about those intersections. What do you, um, to, what do you both, whether it be um, students or yourselves or, or, or other writers who you're in community with, um, as you discuss wanting to, um, you know, as, as we put, contribute to the conversation about these urgent matters, what are some of the common kind of hangups or, or challenges? I mean, it seems like it could be any number of things to me, as, as I imagine it, because I'm, I'm not a creative writer, but whether it's, you know, finding the right level of, of being nuanced and subtle and not being too, like overly overt, or whether finding kind of the right voice that isn't that isn't preachy or pre prescribing a particular mindset. What's the challenge that, which I'm sure is different for many people, what, what are some common challenges that, if not you, other writers that, that you're in community with um, have, have shared with you or that you kind of see happening or that you see are common? Well, you've kind of hit the nail on the head with fiction. I mean, I think that one of the great challenges in writing political fiction is uh, walking that tightrope between conveying uh, a position and also information without uh, destroying the, or undermining what John Gardner calls the fiction's vivid continuous dream. And so when you have, so you have to balance um, the aesthetics of the piece with the politics of the piece. And I've, and this is something that I struggled with the whole time I was writing my novel because I knew in part because uh, when I was working on my dissertation at University of Washington, I read a lot of social realist novels and um, from the 1930s, and those are blatantly political and they're often aesthetically aesthetic failures uh, because the author is too present and is too preachy and there's didactics. Mm -hmm. And so it's no one's going to believe the, the, the actual, the fictional piece. It's, uh, so I thought about that a lot when I was writing my novel and, um, I really came to the conclusion that if there was an intersection where I had to pick art or politics, I had to pick art because, uh, I learned that the art is capacious enough to to hold all the political stuff, but the politics isn't necessarily big enough to to accommodate art. So, um, so that so that's something that uh, that that I struggled with uh, writing that novel and writing some of the short stories that are that are more political, um, and and that includes getting informational information and you know, factual information into the uh, into the piece without it with it with it feeling organic. Um, uh, with some of the things that, eh, I guess I'll leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. 
Rick, how about you? Whether well, yourself or others or students? I, I wanted to go back to the earlier question of this idea of contributing to the conversations about the urgent matters of our time. And um, I, I wanted to respond to that phrase, urgent matters, because I think that um, every artist has to define that for himself or herself, because those matters might not be political, per yeah, se, absolutely. or even cultural. But I think that even if it's uh, an urgent matter to that artist that is autobiographical or very personal or very emotional, the, um, that doesn't make it lesser or better than the kind of artist who's always highlighting the, the political or the social in, in his or her work. I think the task for anybody who does this work, uh, whether you land on the personal end of the spectrum as an artist or the more socially minded end of the spectrum is to do justice to that terrain of work that you're doing. Um, that, that is the, the, the real estate that you have been tasked with describing, imagining, and honoring as complicatedly as you can. So, you know, whatever that might be for the artist, that's what they should, that, that's what they should explore and not worry perhaps that, you know, the urgent matters, uh, are one thing when, what they're doing is is urgent to them. Yeah, and do you think that for some writers that those two things aren't necessarily on opposite sides of a spectrum, oh. political and personal? I mean, for certainly for some it is, for some it isn't. I mean, I think all of us right. experience, you know, some levels of right. political um, shortcomings or dilemmas or um, effects in our, in our daily lives, even as we drive home from work or something like that. Um but I did want to bring up at some point um, kind of diversity in creative writing and, and in particular in publishing and, and who's, I guess, you know, being read or, or, or um, ha, you know, is receiving audience. And I wanted to bring up um, just kind of what that climate's like for um, as far as you can see for artists of color or um, LGBTQ writers or, or even women, not even women or women, women writers. Um, and that's an interesting segue because thinking about bouncing political and personal and different people's life experiences and different and how close or inter how those two things intersect more for some writers than others. Mm -hmm. I realize there's not a question um, in that, but I guess the question, the question <laughs> is kind of what's the it's also what, what's, a can of worms. What, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. But, you know, we're trying to have an interesting, interesting podcast. Right. So, I mean, what what's what do you what how have you two experienced the climate, the climate um maybe yourselves or for other writers um, that, that you know who maybe are being overlooked or maybe, I don't know, what, what do you think the climate's well, like? I'll ha I'll, I have a quick and maybe um, a kind of a dodge answer to, to that question. Um, if, we look, if we look at literary culture, let's say 20 years ago, it was a lot more unified in the sense that there were centers of power or centers of importance that were, you know, that were probably based around places like New York City or Iowa, um, sort of, you know, cultural hubs wherein 
if you were there or if you were being published by um, organs that were based there, you were part of literary culture. And if you weren't involved in those literary centers, you were just beyond the pale. So we jump forward, you know, to now, let's say. I think what we have now are literary cultures that are vital all over the place. Um, sure, there are still hubs that are that are acknowledged as being important, um, having to do with well-known MFA programs and where publishing houses of a certain kind of reputation are based. But we really are, at least in poetry, um, are in a very pluralistic time. A lot, a lot of different kinds of communities, whether those are um, communities defined by ethnic or minority identities who have created their own publishing networks, um, you know, a kind of publishing feasibility that I don't think was, uh, was around 20 years ago. And a lot of this has to do with technology and the ease that people are able sure. to connect and produce things that other people can consume. But that to me is a very good thing in terms of Absolutely. where we are. So yes, we, we may bemoan the fact that, uh, you know, there, there's a certain kind of, um, velvet rope in terms of who gets visibility, um, in the larger literary world. But I think there are many opportunities for all kinds of writers to, to thrive. Gotcha. Um, even if they're not, even if they are outside the velvet ropes, that makes, that makes sense, and that's not un, not diff, not so different than the music or some some other things that I'm or our listeners may be more familiar with, or mm -hmm. film, or a lot of different artistic mediums. And what about mm -hmm. you? How do you kind of experience um, that this particular element of the climate of creative writing? Well, I completely agree with what Rick is saying. Um, I think that as a fiction writer. Uh, there are different uh, how can I put it um I think for a fiction writer the way that uh, the, the the place that publishes the fiction writer is weighted differently than the place that publishes a poet so I think that there is there's a greater hierarchy among fiction writers because we fiction writers still have access to big commercial publishers, which poets almost never do. Mm -hmm. So so there's some of the old school, um, if you're published by a New York publisher, that's kind of where it's at. And I think, and, and so there's plenty, there is you know a lot of opportunity, a lot more opportunity than there was, but there is still a uh, sort of cachet. Uh, and part of the problem with that uh, hierarchy is that unfortunately, and I think this is true of people who are writing people who are writing from uh, positions of color that aren't white, and also definitely positions of class that aren't middle class. Um, uh, the, those those organs have particular expectations about what this particular person from this particular ethnic class uh, position. I think they expect they have expectations about what their work should look like and what kind of conventions it should fulfill. And um, I know this is very true if you're writing about working class or poor white people, and especially with a region like Appalachia. So, um, so my experience 
with approaching and I, and I, so, so I, so I'm not, I don't have an agent and I'm not, I don't publish with a, a New York house and um, I published with a, a sort of a mid-range publisher in California called Counterpoint, who've been incredibly good to me, and I, and I really, um, I love them. But I do know from my own experience and from other people who I grew up with in, in Appalachia, who are writers now and, and who are writing from that region, and also more generally in the, in the, in the nation that are writing out of positions that aren't middle class, there is an expectation that the middle class has of what working class or poor white literature is going to look like and if it doesn't fulfill those conventions you're less likely to to sure. yeah so that's so there so that's kind of a twist on um and i think that's probably true uh if if the difference from the those that center of power is, is race or uh um so yeah so that's just one observation about that gotcha i know that um i used to work at the Grand Cinema and Film Fest and Tacoma Film Festival. So, because I'm a little more familiar with, with, with film than I am fiction, would you say, um, you know, kind of one narrative that's going on um, with film is not so much that uh, major film studios are um, as prejudiced as people may think they are, but they're really married to what's proven yeah. to work. And yeah, so, it's exactly. not as if they have this great agenda of yeah. only having like yeah. white male leads in between yeah. the ages of 25 and 45. They're like, oh, but we're we need to sell whatever this is and we know that this sells. Yeah, it's commercially driven. Although I think that they're, they they make assumptions about their audiences that aren't necessarily uh, real. I mean, that's so uh, I think that, that I mean, they're uh, over and over again, they, they'll take a chance and publish something that doesn't fulfill those conventions and, and takes off, you know, and it's this great hit. But yeah, they're, they're the gatekeeping, especially as these publishers become more and more threatened with the uh, with e-publishing and with self-publishing and and the uh, they they're even more conservative about what they want to put their put their weight behind. So yeah, you're exactly right. Gotcha. So I wanted to talk a bit about the the Rainier Writing Workshop at at PLU. Um, again, Rick is the director of that program, and and is a um, a faculty member. And um, do you also serve in like the the mentorship program like throughout yeah. the year? Yeah. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Yes. For folks who don't know about the program, what level of of writer? Is, is the program directed to? And what, who, where are a lot of the students coming from who enter into this program? What are their goals and aspirations? Uh, and where are they in their process of trying to become published and I would assume kind of active creative writers? So the, the, the program attracts a wide range of people in terms of geographical background, age, um, the genres that they work in, the kinds of ambitions that that they have, that they bring to uh, their writing, and also that they bring to their experience in the program. In addition to that diversity, I think there are a number of important commonalities that that define the people who end up in the program. One of this has to do, I think, with just a love of craft. You, You don't enter an MFA program without wanting to be immersed in the mechanics of what it is that you're doing. There are a lot of writers out there who are passionate writers, but they're not necessarily interested in understanding what's happening under the hood. Um, I think that um, we we attract uh, writers who are. Um, I think another commonality that, that is... Um, interesting to me about the, the students that we have is that they've, they've all arrived at a place where 
they, they've reached the limit of what they can do for themselves. Uh, so we have writers who've been writing for only a couple of years, and we have writers who've been writing for 30 years. Mm. And at home, they've built writing practices and communities that, that have served them very well. But they've gotten to a place where they need more. Uh, and so they come to this program wanting that strategic intervention uh, and and the program helps to lift them to that to that other place. So I think those those are two things that that define the kind of student we have. They they tend to be very mature about their work because this is a low residency program, which means that a lot of the work they do they do on their own at home. They are being mentored by a uh, a faculty member like Anne, but the the program really requires that they be mature and independent. Um, Age-wise, that can mean somebody who's in their late 20s, you know, into their 60s and 70s. Although we've had we've had students who are younger as well, but a certain level of maturity is is key. And what do you value about the program? What do you think is maybe and also maybe a little unique about the program? Um, I think one thing that's unique about the program is that uh, a lot of the people that we admit are not people who have English degrees. Um, They're not coming straight out of literary backgrounds, literature backgrounds, I should say, not literary. And so there's I I really value working with people who have had real life experiences. Most of them are, are, you know, have had jobs, have had families, have traveled and um, come with a different perspective than someone who's been fairly... uh, not not isolated, but sort of chaperoned along through the uh, the four year um, English degree, which which I was. But uh, they bring a, a wider uh, both um, content that they like to write about, but also the kind of perspective that I think uh, influences the kind of forms that they use to write with, to write with. They're also uh, very hardworking, very disciplined. One doesn't have to do a lot of uh, policing of you know what what get them getting their work done or. And um, they're also very grateful. So I, I really appreciate that. Gotcha. Well, we are running out of time here in the KPLU Seattle uh, studio where they are, are very, very busy. So I was hoping that we um, could close by um, you're both sharing, you know, what projects you're working on right now with your with your personal writing. Well, I've spent about the last six months uh, just kind of publicizing a new collection of short stories that came out called Me and My Daddy Listen to Bob Marley. So so I'm kind of at the end of that project and at very beginning rudimentary playing around with what's probably going to be a nonfiction, partly memoir, partly environmental uh, a piece. But uh, it's, it's, it's shifting every time I work with it, so I'm not sure what it's going to be. Gotcha. How about you, Rick? Well, like, like Anne, I'm... I'm uh shepherding a new book into the world so my 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 new book just came out and i'm i'm going to be doing a lot of promotion for it and what's it called it's called cord cord c-h-o-r-d um on the other hand i'm, I'm also at at this moment about halfway into a new poetry collection that i've been working on so it's it's a it's a it's a book that i i i'm really enamored with right now um, which is nice because uh, uh, I, I'm thinking of cord right now as a product more than it is something that 
you know, that I'm emotionally attached to. What I loved about writing that book was being in the, the love affair of writing the book. When it's you and the poems and the energy of the book. And then once you deliver it to a publisher, it's, you know, you, you, you've broken that spell between yourself and the book. So what's, what's nice about being in the middle of another project is that I'm, just to kind of test the metaphor further, I'm in another romance. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's nice to be working on poems for, for a new project. I'm also trying to, to finish a book of essays on poetry and art. It's been a long, long going project that I, I would like to finish very soon. So that sounds really, that's where really I am. interesting. Well, thank you both so much for, for being with us today. Uh, you can learn more about the Rainier Writing Workshop at plu.edu slash MFA. And uh, for more uh, PLU news and podcasts, you can visit plu.edu slash news. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks so much, Rick and Ann, for being here. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Zach.